great to have you on board listening to this podcast. My name is Liam West and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today it's great to get to introduce Professor Stanley Herring from the USA, who's a prominent voice in the world of spinal disorders and sports related concussions. A physical medicine and rehabilitation physician by trade, he's got a great deal of prestigious roles within sports medicine over the past 30 years. And it's going to be great to be able to tap into his expertise today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Professor Herring. Great to be here. We're recording this podcast at the South African Sports Medicine Conference in the beautiful city of Cape Town. Some great scenery around us and where you've just given a bit of a blockbuster lecture on back pain in the adolescence, specifically spondylolysis. How much of a concern is this for our adolescent active population? When a young athlete develops back pain. Many times, like with an adult, there's not a specific diagnosis, but when that back pain persists, it's more likely than not in an adolescent that there is something specifically wrong. Active athletes who stop their sport, their training or their competition because they have focal back pain, a spondylolysis should be considered until proven otherwise. Now they might have other problems, but this is not non-specific persistent chronic low back pain. There's usually something going on in them. The story here is in these young active athletes look for a fracture in the region of the pars articularis. Is there anything that you find they always seem to say that resonates with you? The thing that strikes me is these are often the best and most active athletes. It's very difficult to get them to stop activity. They cannot continue. They stop running down the field in the, in the middle of a, of a match because their back hurts too much. So the, the significance of it, the persistence of it, they may start somewhat more insidiously, but it begins to hurt so much they just can't go. And that's usually a clue to me that there's something wrong. We do history, we then go on to examinations. So what tests as clinicians do you think that we're normally using in the clinic? And I guess to confirm our, our suspicions from that history, and, and are they useful? Sure, I mean, it's, I still believe very strongly in the discipline of taking a history and doing a physical examination. The history is important. It's usually focal back pain. It's not radiating into their extremities. There's no numbness when they're tingling. The history is important to make sure there's not fever, weight loss, or other historical findings that might suggest a different diagnosis. It's your duty to sort that out. The physical examination is important sometimes to find out what's normal. Their neurological examination should be normal. They should not really have dural tension signs. And we often look to see, do they have pain with range of motion? One would think that with an injury to the region of the pars and articularis, that lumbar extension, single leg extension, repetitive lumbar extension would be the ticket. That would be the thing that would make this fracture hurt. And you know, sometimes that's true, but not always true. As a matter of fact, if you look at the best study that correlates gold standard diagnostic tests and clinical examination data, a study published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2006, it turns out that depending upon lumbar extension to reduce the pain has very poor sensitivity and specificity. It's great if it's there, but if it's not, you cannot rule out the fact there still may be an acute pars fracture. So our examination may put us in a bit of a gray zone. Are we leaning more on imaging here? This is a radiologic diagnosis. A diagnosis of spinal injury is made 
by imaging. It is uh, clinical suspicion, but confirmed by imaging. So X-ray, nuclear medicine scan, CT or MRI or a combination of both are the tools to actually confirm the diagnosis. I'll give you a case. I'm working in a clinic and, and as you say, a 15-year-old runner that's gone through a lot of issues and, and the significant back pain that's now stopping them. What are your thoughts behind which are your go-to methods of imaging? Just because you see a PARS defect doesn't necessarily mean it's a source of pain. This is an unusual fracture. What other fracture can occur without symptoms, can be present oftentimes by the age of six, has a hereditary predisposition. So this is a different fracture. So if you take an x-ray, standing AP and lateral is what we do in our practice, and you see a pars fracture, if it correlates with the symptoms, you're on the right path. But remember, you don't know how old or how active that pars fracture is. If you see a fracture, fine, but if you don't see a fracture, radiology, plain film radiology, is not necessarily very sensitive. So maybe you're not done. Then you have to make a choice. One choice is to do no more imaging and say to the family, this looks like something consistent with an acute spondylitic injury, which we cannot always see on x-ray. And we're gonna, we can stop the workup now if you'll agree that your son or daughter will rest and we see if the symptoms go away. How long they rest, at least until the symptoms go away. There's evidence that some fractures heal better than others, which you will not know by plain film x-ray. You can say, if you'll agree to rest for two or three months and it goes away, we don't have to do any workup. If that's not the case, for whatever reason, particularly if they're very young and you're worried that they have a pars fracture that can extend to both sides and they can develop a spondylolisthesis as they get a growth spurt, then the workup needs to proceed. What we do is we do a nuclear medicine study. We understand there's radiation, but we do a bone scan, spec scan. I would like to see if that pars fracture on x-ray or perhaps at a level where I can't see a pars fracture is metabolically active. It's an active or acute fracture. Other imaging gives you a picture, but not a metabolic picture. If we do a bone scan, spec scan, and the spec scan really is essential, it's twice as sensitive as a planar bone scan, and there is an area of increased uptake, we follow that with a very focused thin section CT exam. Not a lot of radiation to the, to the body, but enough from pedicle to pedicle so we can see what that fracture or that finding looks like. Sometimes there's no fracture at all, it's just a stress reaction. Sometimes the fracture is incomplete, one cortex. Sometimes it's in the facet joint, sometimes it's in the pedicle. Certain fractures have a better chance of healing than others. So this helps us in our decision-making process. A young adolescent or pre-adolescent, pars fracture on one side, one cortex involved, very high chance with rest that that will heal, with or without bracing. Knowing that, that seems to us to be the preference, that all things being equal, let's let the fracture heal. Understanding that the clinical outcome is really pretty good whether the fracture heals or not. But if there's a chance, a realistic chance for fracture healing, we'll take that route. If we have a hot bone scan, spec scan, the CT shows a very chronic fracture, eburnated bone margins, corticated bone margins, and it's just irritated. We know that's not gonna heal. And as soon as the athlete is comfortable with relative rest, we'll reactivate them and rehabilitate them. It helps us make a decision in terms of treatment.
that's the choice that we make. We understand there's radiation. MRI examination is so tempting because there's no radiation. It shows other pathology well. It shows most well-established par fractures well. Where MRI falls short, even if you're specifically imaging to look at the pars region, is in those stress reactions and single cortex fractures. Our challenge there is that those are the ones we most want to know because we're more aggressive about resting the athlete for the chance of healing. Our algorithm, therefore, is a standing AP and lateral X-ray, standing because we can see if there's a spondylolisthesis. We do not take oblique X-rays. It doesn't increase the sensitivity that much. There's a lot of radiation. If the X-ray shows the pars fracture, or if it does not, if the symptoms fit, we do proceed with further workup or offer the patient a chance for just rest, regardless of the further workup. The next step for us is a spec scan, correlating with CT, and then our decision tree is made for us. Stress reaction, rest, six weeks. Stress fracture, single cortex, or both cortices with a high chance for healing, about three months, maybe a little bit less. If you do that, and you don't find anything on the bone scan, spec scan, or the CT, but symptoms persist and you're obligated to look further. In other words, there might be something on MRI discitis or something you're not going to find. Laboratory studies, advanced imaging would be helpful. We do not routinely brace our patients. The data is very clear that, the, that their clinical recovery rate is really much the same with or without bracing. Um, bracing does not really restrict segmental motion in the lower lumbar spine. Ironically, it may increase motion, whether it's a rigid brace, with, even with a thigh extension or even casting. We do use bracing as an adjunct. If after three weeks of rest, the patient's no better, we know it's a pars fracture by our workup, it is an effective way to decrease activity. That's how we manage these injuries. Once again, even if there's not bony healing, the clinical outcome is usually positive. We would like to have bony healing if possible. We realize that there are different approaches to this and the clinical outcomes are similar. The critical piece, regardless of your diagnostic workup, is if this is a pars fracture, relative rest is essential. They will not get better if they do not rest for some time. That's the commonality. Our bias is to chase the workup a little bit or give the parents an option to say, if you just want to rest this long enough, whether it's an acute fracture or an old fracture, after two or three months it's done. It could be done a lot more quickly if it's a chronic fracture. We'll give them an option as well. Really great treatment algorithms there and decision tree, and I think we're giving some of our listeners some time frames, which is useful information to be able to tell the, the, the patient, but also the parent. You mentioned that whether they fracture or don't, there's the same outcome. So does this pathology really matter? If you look at professional athletes, American tackle football players, the offensive linemen, they come to the combine at the in, where they're gonna be drafted in the NFL. And often routinely lumbar spine x-rays are ordered. As many of a third of them may have an old pars fracture. So the presence of an old pars fracture in an adult is rarely the source of pain. So most patients function, certainly patients who don't have symptoms and have those fractures can exercise at a high level. 
if a young person has a pars fracture before their growth spurt, however, and it's both sides, with the growth spurt, there's a real chance for a slip. So if there's, once again, the chance to heal that, it makes sense to offer that with no guarantee that it will heal or that it won't refracture. But it is the younger athlete where there is a real chance for bony healing. And I often get the question, well, yes, but they have to miss two or three months of activity. And aren't you worried about that? Um, of course, we're concerned that, that they're become detrained and deactive. That's part of the rehabilitation process. The absence of symptoms doesn't mean normal function. So it's an opportunity for you then to offer a comprehensive rehabilitation program, not necessarily to guarantee spine safety because you don't have a pain again, but to work on flexibility, strengthening, motor control, power, and endurance, and also use that exercise session as a way to teach periodization of training. Often these athletes who have PARS injuries play their sport every day of the year. It's a way to introduce recovery training, and we, we find that to be helpful as well. Some people will put an athlete in a brace and let him or her play in the brace if their back doesn't hurt. Um, we just have no data whether that affects the bony healing or not. I would much prefer to get it over with and say we need, you know, 90 days, 60 to 90 days, we can get through this, we'll find what you can and can't do and then we'll recondition you. One last point before I let you go. Can we just dive in and maybe a sentence to exactly what you mean by relative rest? Daily activities are fine. Uh, pounding, running, cutting, lifting, bending, jumping, probably not. The very things that made them hurt are the things that need to stop. Without that, whether you choose to brace them or not brace them or do an MRI or a CT or bone scan, they don't get well. They really do have to, it is a broken bone, a, a bit different type of broken bone, but they do have to rest. Not strict bed rest, not being afraid to walk down the stairs or walk to school. Really resting from sporting activity, competition and training. For a young clinician, it's been extremely useful and valuable for me to tap into your experiential learning and thank you very much for your time. Great to be here. And thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this BGSM podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it, that you've learned lots and remember to engage further with the BGSM through our various social media channels. I hope you get to have a physically active day and remember your back will thank you for it.